Family reunions are hard, but sometimes they're also kind of funny. Um, I remember a family reunion not too long ago where this really old woman came up to me and she said, Little Wayne? <laughs> and I said, Yes. She says, I remember you 40 something years ago. And I wanted to say, you know, I don't remember you. You look a lot different 40 years ago. And she, and she said, and she literally patted me on the head. And I thought she was going to pinch my cheek or something. But she's just, she saw me through the lens of, you know, I'll never be anything but this little kid. Because she knew me as a boy, she couldn't take me seriously as a man. And uh, after that happened, I thought, you know what, that's what Jesus went through when he went back to Nazareth. When he went back to Nazareth, they knew him as a boy, and so they couldn't take him seriously as a man, much less as a Messiah. Well, turn with me, if you would, to the book of Mark, and let's continue. Mark chapter 4. I didn't see the movie Bruce Almighty, and uh, it's probably just as well that I didn't, but I read an article about something funny that happened after that movie released. Um, Bruce Almighty, basically the premise of the movie is this guy named Bruce is mad at God for all that's happened in his life, and so he, he, uh, God gives him the chance to basically be God for a while and to see if he can do it any better. Well, one of the, one of the scenes in Bruce Almighty is uh, God's phone number appeared on Bruce's pager. And it, but it didn't have the area code. And, so, and it was, the thing it was, it was a real phone number. It wasn't one of those 555 phone numbers that you, you'll always see that don't exist. This was a real phone number. <laughs> and so people would call it to want to talk to God. And they'd put their own area code, you know, in front of it or something like that. So all the area codes across, you know, the United States, whoever had that particular phone number in that area code was getting these phone calls from people People who weren't quite, you know, probably very healthy, thinking that the phone call is going to get them to God, at wanting to talk to God. And I wrote down a couple of uh, the statements that occurred. One woman got an answering machine, and this is the message she left. I'm in jail right now. Like I said to you last night, I love you. She promised to go straight, and, to, and she prayed to be able to return to her husband and children. Another caller said, Hey God, I've got some really I've really I've done some really bad things in my life and I need to repent. So please answer my prayers. Another caller said, "I know this isn't the number for God, but I'm calling to see if you have the number." <laughs> but this one was really good. Uh, there was an executive in San Diego, a lady named Kathy Romano. She's the president of a company that pr that manages the practices of 70 doctors. So this is a busy woman. And after basically overcoming her initial irritation and getting 40 phone calls a day from people thinking it was God's phone number, finally she just decided to play along. And she answered and she said, hello, this is God. And the lady on the other end of the phone said, I can't believe it. It's God and it's a woman. <laughs> you know, I read that story and I thought people want so badly to talk to God people want so badly to hear from God 
You know, it's one thing to be able to talk to God, but what we're really wanting, if we could call the Lord, is answers. We, we want a Job encounter, you know, where, where Job was dealing with all that he dealt with and said, look, if I just had an audience with God, we could work this out. Well, here in Mark chapter 4, we're in the process of going through this book, and as I mentioned with the family reunion, people want to hear from God, but when God speaks, they can't take him seriously. Jesus Christ has come on the scene, and in the first three chapters, we've seen how he has graciously offered the kingdom to Israel. And yet more and more you see the, the uh, uh, opposition building against what he's doing. He's offering the kingdom to Israel on the contingency that they repent. Back in Deuteronomy 27 through 30 is the whole uh, God's relationship with Israel is contingent on their repentance. And if they didn't repent, he said he'd take them out of the land and then he'd bring them back in. And if they'd repent, he'd, he'd give them the kingdom. And so here's Christ appearing on the scene with that very offer. And unfortunately, as we saw last week in Mark 3, Christ sees very clearly that the nation is going to reject him. So with that context in mind, uh, let's begin Mark chapter 4. Let's just look at the first verse. It says, He began to teach by the sea. And such a very large crowd gathered to him that he got into a boat in the sea and sat down, and the whole crowd was by the sea on the land. All right, I want to show you a video here, <clears throat> kind of a little geography connection. Um, first of all, I don't know if I can do this. Yeah, it shows, but I want to show you something... <laughs> Um, there's that, and then let's go to, what is it called? Google Maps. Let's call it Maps, Sea, sea of Galilee. And I think the internet connection is working here, so we'll, I'll be able to show it to you. It's working on this screen. I wonder why it won't connect. Well, it's pretty slow. I'll tell you what, that won't work. Why don't we do it the old-fashioned way? Look in the back of your Bible at the maps. <laughs> Let's try that. If you look at the back of the Bible, find something that talks about the ministry of Jesus, or it's probably only one map that says that. But the Sea of Galilee is what you're looking for. Yeah, map, maps in the back of the Bible are great, but they're really just kind of pictures. You want to get a good atlas. If you don't have an atlas, you want to get a good atlas. But the Sea of Galilee, at the very top of the Sea of Galilee, where the Jordan River flows into it, if you have a map that gets that close, you can see, um, try to find Capernaum. Capernaum. It's toward the top, sort of... Uh, Wow, my map has Capernaum way up above the Sea of Galilee. You know, it doesn't go there. <laughs> Shows you how often I look at these. But that's, where, that's what we're after. Mark chapter 3 occurred in Capernaum. And if we were to turn...
turn to Matthew 13. You don't have to turn there, but if we were to turn to Matthew 13, it begins with the words, that day Jesus went out and began to teach, and basically it's the parallel passage of what we're reading here in Mark 4. In light of the anticipation of his rejection, that day he began to teach by the sea. So what the video that I want to show you here is actually a video that I took about six weeks ago. Our tour bus was parked at Capernaum, and Jesus would have walked from Capernaum to the west, like toward the direction that my aerial video, the drone, is flying along the northern shore. And you can see this cove right here on both sides here. You can see the cove that we're flying toward. This is called, um, it's been named the Cove of the Sower because of the, the parable that we're about to read. But this cove forms a natural theater sort of a, a stadium, as you, as you would, that has natural acoustics that can accommodate thousands of people listening on the shoreline. And so here's a picture of the, um, the cove straight above it. And you can sort of see how, the, how it forms this you know, theater. Imagine people all around and Jesus in a boat in the middle of that cove. His voice would have carried, you know, across the water. If you've ever been like on a boat on the lake, you can really hear on the water. And then once that starts to go up the hillside, it just echoed even more. And there was actually a study done back in 1976. The biblical archaeologist published an article that showed the results of an acoustical study that was done of this cove. The study showed that five to 7,000 people could fill the area below the road. So you can see the road is sort of at the top right of the screen, and there's an area of the hillside. If we can go back and run this video again, you'll see an area of the hillside above the road where another you know, seven-plus thousand people could easily have stood. And this study showed that people... Um, not only below the road, but above the road, could hear a lone voice there on the shore. And a study, it's a study actually that we've done on our, our tours. Um, we did it about six weeks ago, and uh, uh, we plan to do it again in March, Lord willing. But what happens is I basically jump the fence and run down to the edge of the water near where Jesus stood. I don't get in the water, but where Jesus stood right there on the, on the cove, and then the people scatter all up on the hillside. And where the video is paused, you can see now the road is at the bottom of the screen. But that hillside right there goes all the way up, and at the very top about where the, the tree line begins is uh, an outcropping of rocks. And I've had uh, some young folks go all the way up to the top and sit on those rocks, and were able to hear my voice down from the, uh, from the cove very clearly. So it really is remarkable. I've been on both sides of it. I've had somebody at the bottom reading, and they, they read this parable. And so it's, uh, this is probably, very probably, where this incident that we're going to read here in Mark occurred. And the study that was done, you can see some of the, uh, what do you call this, the schematics or whatever of the, of the cove that showed the acoustical study of how far someone could hear Christ's voice. But it's pretty remarkable. 
And it's even more remarkable when you think about the fact that, that Jesus designed the cove, knowing that he would be there one day, and uh, he wanted a lot of people to be able to hear him. Mark, the very first verse here says that he was by, that he began to teach by the sea, and it doesn't just say a crowd gathered. It doesn't just say a large crowd gathered. It says a very large crowd gathered. And we know that a very large crowd could indeed hear Jesus. Well, let's keep reading. Verse 2, And he was teaching them many things in parables, and was saying to them in his teaching, Listen to this. Behold, the sower went out to sow, and as he was sowing, some seed fell beside the road, and the birds came up and ate it. Other seed fell on the rocky ground, where it did not have much soil, and immediately it sprang up because it had no depth of soil. And after the sun had risen, it was scorched, and because it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among the thorns, and the thorns came up and choked it, and it yielded no crop. Other seeds fell into the good soil, and as they grew up and increased, they yielded a crop and produced thirty, sixty, and a hundredfold. And he was saying, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Notice as Jesus said this parable, how it opens in verse 3. It says, listen. And then look how it ends in verse 9. He was saying, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Or if you look in your margin, it's literally, listen. So he begins and ends with the exact same word, listen. Um, if you got ears, this is what they're for, Jesus says, to listen. He begins the parable by basically saying, I want you to pay attention. It's a creative way of asking for focus. And we know that because of the geography of the, the layout, as we've seen, that many people could hear Jesus. And not only that, we know that there was a major highway that ran right there along the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee. It was an international highway. And all of what Jesus used here in the parable the seed on the road, the thorns, the rocks, the good soil, all of those particular types of soil were there and easily could have been pointed to by Christ as he was in the boat and as he was teaching. Well, look at verse 10. He said to them to listen, verse 10, as soon as he was alone, his followers along with the twelve began asking him about the parables. And he was saying to them, to you has been given the mystery of the kingdom of God. But those who are outside get everything in parables, so that while seeing, they may see and not perceive, and while hearing, they may hear and not understand. Otherwise, they might return and be forgiven. And he said to them, do you not understand this parable? How will you understand all the parables? Remember when we were looking at the verses last week and Jesus said that his true family, he asked, you know, who are my mother and my brothers? Who is my true family, as it were? Christ said, the ones who do the will of God. Um, it's sort of a, a premonition, as we mentioned, that the nation is going to reject him. And so he realizes the nation is going to reject him. And so more and more he begins to withdraw his offer of the kingdom to Israel 
and put that on the shelf for a later generation and now focus more and more of his attention to preparing the disciples for the age of the church. Jesus calls this age, he refers to it here in verse 11, the mystery of the kingdom of God. That is, it's something the Old Testament didn't reveal. The Apostle Paul, when he often referred to the church as a mystery, he referred to it in that sense because it was something that the Old Testament never anticipated. It allowed for it because clearly it, ha- it has happened, but it didn't anticipate it. It was a mystery. And so when Christ says the mystery of the kingdom, the mystery in this sense is namely that the kingdom is going to be preceded by another age that no one anticipated and, frankly, that nobody wanted yet. The disciples were all ready for the kingdom. The nation Israel, as far as the crowds go, were all ready for the kingdom. Let's bring in this Messiah who feeds us, who heals us, and by the way, while you're at it, squash Rome and let's you know get this world ruling thing happening. It was all about physical needs and political peace. It had nothing to do with repentance. It had nothing to do with a relationship with God. It was all about physical and, and uh, political. And Jesus said we, we get the cart before the horse when we take it in that order. And he realizes that they're not going to repent, so he begins to withdraw the, ingdom, the, the, the kingdom and focus on the, uh, the church. And so the parables. It says that he, in verse 2, that he told them many things in, in parables. Remember back in chapter 3, verse 23, it says that he began speaking to them in parables. And it was just one little mention last week, and then we moved on. But it's worth noting, began speaking to them in parables. And then in chapter 4, verse 2, he was teaching them many things in parables. And then, uh, let's see, verse 10, as soon as he's alone, his followers come up to him and say, why are you talking in parables? This is something new. Before, Jesus' words were very clear. Here's exactly what has to happen for the kingdom to come. But now Jesus begins to sort of downshift, as it were, or to take a different tack on how he communicates, and he does it through parables. In fact, the the Gospels say that from this point, whenever he talked, he talked in parables. And when asked why he does it, his answer is, is pretty clear. To you, to you who believe the mystery of the kingdom of God, I'm going to, going to explain it to you. But those who are on the outside, those who don't believe, they get everything in parables. What's a parable? A parable, the, the word um, is basically, you know, sometimes it's called you know, come, come alongside, but the word para, bole, it's sort of a, a compound word, Para means beside, like parallel. And bole, I forget what bole means. Anybody know? Alongside. Well, something like that. But, yeah, I actually really forgot what para bole means. But the idea is that when you have something that comes alongside, it, it parallels it, or it gives an illustration of it. And so a parable is something that basically comes alongside and gives an illustration of something that helps you understand it better if you're looking to understand. So when Jesus quotes verse 12 here, he's quoting Isaiah, 
And he says, here's the reason that I talk in parables, so that while seeing, they may see but not perceive. While hearing, they may hear and not understand. Now, that sort of sounds like Jesus is hiding stuff from people. Well, in a way, he is. He's hiding from those who are on the outside, from those who really don't want to hear the truth. And it's not that he's doing it so that they can't uh, return and be forgiven, because if they would repent, they would. If they would return, they'd be forgiven. But he's doing it so that there isn't greater condemnation. It's really an act of mercy. With more revelation comes greater condemnation if you don't act on it. And so for Jesus to hide the truth from people who really didn't want to hear it anyway gives them less condemnation when it comes time to be judged. It was an act of mercy. It was not simply hiding the truth so they wouldn't get it. No matter how much truth is revealed, if somebody isn't interested in the truth, it doesn't matter. They're not going to receive it. But to those who are interested, it wasn't just a parable. It was something that gave an illustration that took them deeper. And so Jesus goes on to basically explain to his disciples the meaning of this parable. And in verse 13, he asked them, Do you not understand this parable? How will you understand all the parables? Verse 14, the sower, he goes on to explain it. The sower sows the word. These are the ones who are beside the road where the word is sown. And when they hear, immediately, Satan comes and takes away the word which has been sown in them. So the sower, we're told, sows the word. So understand the picture that Jesus is giving here. Of a sower to go out and to sow seed is someone basically who is proclaiming the word. Or it's your interaction with the word. And so... Very simply, if you take the high view all of a sudden, if you want to bear fruit in your life, it all depends on your response to the Word of God. And your response to the Word of God depends on the preparedness of your soil or the preparedness of your heart. So the soil is really a picture of the receptivity of you to the Word of God and how you will respond to it. Peter said a similar thing in his uh, first letter where he says that the means by which we grow, he says, you know, you want to long for the, the word of God like a baby longs for milk, because by it, by the word, you may grow in respect to salvation. You want to grow in your Christian life? You've got to be in the Bible. That is the means of your growth. The primary means of your growth is this book. Your daily time in this book is as essential as your daily time at the dinner table. You know, we don't think twice about brushing our teeth or eating or doing any of the other things that are essential for our well-being. But some, for some reason, sitting down and actually being involved with the Word of God on a regular daily basis continues to, to trip us up. And that's because, as we read in the parable, Satan does all he can to get this book out of your life as opposed to it being in your life because he knows that if this book lands on the soil of your heart, you will grow. You will change. You will become more and more like the author of this book. And that is its intent. The soil, this first soil, 
falls upon the road. And the highway that basically lay before them had literally been used for thousands of years. And the birds here are likened to Satan who comes and steals the word of God. Paul told the Corinthian church that Satan has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of God, of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Satan is very much involved in your spiritual life. He doesn't want the word of God to be part of it. You're, you must have a commitment that the word of God is part of it. It must be part of your, your Christian life or you won't grow. So that's the first soil and the first problem that occurs there is Satan takes the, um, the seed away. Verse 16, in a similar way, these are the ones on whom the seed was sown on the rocky places, who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy, and they have no firm root in themselves, but are only temporary. Then when affliction or persecution arises because of the word, immediately they fall away, or literally they are caused to stumble. Fall away doesn't mean losing salvation. It just means you trip. You're caused to stumble because of this affliction. Three times back in verses 5 and 6, Jesus said it. Look back in verses 5 and 6. Let's read those again. It's, he said, Other seed fell on the rocky ground where it did not have much soil. That's number one. Immediately it sprang up because it had no depth of soil. That's number two. And after the sun had risen, it was scorched and because it had no root, that's number three, it withered away. Three times in those two verses, Jesus emphasized the fact that it had no depth. And because it had no depth, there was no place for the seed to grow. It was shallow. It, not only was it shallow soil, but we use that metaphor in thinking about a shallow spiritual life, and it's a pretty good one-to-one -one connection. Um, if you read much of the 19th century American poet, Emily Dickinson, you're probably familiar with the fact that she wrote a lot on death and immortality. When Dickinson was 15, she professed faith in Christ, and this is what she wrote. She said, I felt I had found my Savior. I never enjoyed such perfect peace and happiness, age 15. But later on, this is what she wrote, later on in her life. She said, I soon forgot my morning prayer, or else it was irksome to me. One by one, my old habits returned, and I cared less for religion than ever. I'm not happy, and I regret that last term. When the golden opportunity was mine, that I did not give up and become a Christian. It is now too late, so my friends tell me, so my offended conscience whispers, but it's hard for me to give up the world. Emily Dickinson. I don't know where she landed after that. I hope that somebody with the truth came to her and let her know that it's never too late. It's never too late. And don't listen. Satan, Satan would, would tell you a couple of things. When you were younger, he would tell you, you got plenty of time. Don't get serious about Christ now. And now that you're a little more mature, he tells you, it's too late. So it's either too early or too late. For Satan, it's never a good time 
to take Christ seriously. For the Lord, it's always a good time. It's always a good time. The book of Hebrews says, Today, if you have heard his voice, do not harden your heart. As long as it is called today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. If you have been walking with Jesus Christ for years and some, for some reason you've allowed your personal time in the Word, your personal time with prayer to slip, and other things have become more important to you, and I tell you, this time of year can be, strangely, the worst because we get so busy, oh, so busy doing stuff, which sort of brings us to the next set of the next soil, verse eighteen and nineteen. And on others are the ones on whom seen was the seed was sown among the thorns. These are the ones who have heard the word. But the worries of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word, and it becomes unfruitful. This is where we are in our lives when first it seems like we're making good progress, but the word is choked, to quote Christ, by the worries of the world. Whatever it is that's, that distracts you from what is really important. The deceitfulness of riches, interesting how that's phrased. Why are they deceitful? They're deceitful because they give a false sense of security. The desire for other things, sort of an all-inclusive statement of how we can get distracted in our walk with God. USA Today asked Americans whether they would be willing to work an 80-hour work week just for a few years if there was a potential for a big financial payoff. 54% of us said no, but 46% said yes, that the payoff is worth it. John Piper wrote these words. He said, The greatest enemy of love to God is not his enemies, but his gifts. And the most deadly appetites are not for the poison of evil, but for the simple pleasures of earth. For when these replace an appetite for God himself, The idolatry is scarcely recognizable and almost incurable. The pleasures of this life and the desires for other things, these are not evil in and of themselves. These these are not vices. They're gifts from God. They're your basic meat and potatoes and coffee and gardening and reading and decorating and traveling and investing and television. And all of them can become a deadly substitute for God. George Barna did a poll And he discovered that 99% of all believers own a Bible. And most of us own more than one. And if God's word is so available to us, then why, according to this parable, are we not bearing fruit like crazy? Part of his survey asked adults why they weren't more zealous about serving God, and two-thirds basically said that they're just too busy. We're already so busy, our calendars are already so full, and Jesus comes along and asks us for more. You know, the average high school student, by the time he graduates, has watched 22,000 hours of television, has had 11,000 hours in the classroom, 10,000 hours of music, and roughly only 600 hours of religious instruction. And in the United States, where the average home has the television on seven hours a day, it's really tough to counter that with a 45-minute sermon once a week. 
This is why not only, as Deuteronomy 6 says, in your home, with your children and your grandchildren, the Christian life or the life of walking with God should permeate your normal conversations. It's not just, God is not just something we talk about when we bow our head, you know, in front of the Thanksgiving turkey or at Sunday lunch. God's not just something that we talk about on Sundays as we, you know, go to church or go to our adult fellowship. He is part of our life. It's like what Christ told Satan when Christ was quoting the, from the book of Deuteronomy. He said uh, that the word is not an idle word, it is your life. That the word is not simply, um, that man doesn't live just by flesh, doesn't live on bread alone, but he lives by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. We're not just physical beings, we're spiritual beings. And the word of God is what is essential for our growth. You must be in the Word. Max Lucado offered a good remedy. He said, before the farmer sows the seed, he works the acreage, removing rocks and pulling the stumps, and he knows that seed grows better if the land is prepared. Confession is the act of inviting God to walk the acreage of our hearts. There's a rock of greed over there. Father, I can't budget. In that tree of guilt near the fence, its roots are long and deep. And may I show you some dry soil, too crusty for seed? God's seed grows better if the soil of our heart is cleared. So if your heart isn't hard or shallow or preoccupied, then it's good. It's good soil. And as a result, it can bear fruit. Look at verse 20. Christ said, and those are the ones on whom seed was sown on the good soil, and they hear the word, and accept it, and bear fruit thirty, sixty, and a hundredfold. Notice those who heard and accepted bore fruits in varying amounts, though all bore some. Both are important to, to realize. In your Christian life, if the Word of God has landed on good soil of your heart, you've borne fruit, and all of us have. Paul wrote to the Corinthians that we all will stand before God at the judgment seat of Christ and will receive some reward. There is something that we've done in our Christian life. We've borne fruit in some way. But some are 30, some are 60, and some are 100. Now, I don't think that Christ is saying that those who are 30 need to step up to the plate and bear 100, but there are some who are 30 that bear 30, and that's okay, because they, they have good soil too. But God has give, given us and gifted us with different levels of output. Don't measure your spirituality by Chuck. Don't measure your spirituality by Mother Teresa or Billy Graham. You measure it by you. God has given you 30 or 60 or 100-fold. Listen to what the Apostle Paul wrote in Romans 12, 3. Just listen. He said, I say to everyone among you not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think so as to have sound judgment, as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. 
What he's saying is God has made you you. And some of us are going to be gifted to have an output that is, you know, greater than others. Don't look at somebody who's got a greater output than you and, th- and think, well, because I can't do that, I can't do anything. Or because I can't do that, what I'm doing doesn't matter. And if you are a hundred, you know, person output, you don't look at the others who can only do 30 and say, what's wrong with you? Why aren't you like me? Why don't you produce the amount that I produce? Now, Jesus said all of the seed landed on good soil. 30, 60, and 100 fold, all are great. You just do the best that you can do with the way that God has gifted you, and you watch God multiply the fish and loaves, as it were, that you bring to him. I want to show you a chart that sort of illustrates this parable. Because in this chart you have, uh, first of all, the soils, and each of them has a barrier, and each of them has a way around the barrier. So first is the seed that falls on the road. The barrier is Satan. This is the person who hears. The next the, is the person who accepts. This is the, the seed that fell on the rocky places. And the barrier to bearing fruit is affliction. The next one is the person who hears and accepts. the seed sown among the thorns, but the barrier is worries, riches, and things. And the next one has broken through the barrier. So now let's talk about how to break through the barrier on each of these. A lot of people try to get hung up on, well, who who in this is saved and who is not saved? We could talk about that, but let's talk about you. Just think about you on this chart. Where would you find yourself? Where do you find yourself on this chart? Maybe you've heard the Word of God all your life, but all you've ever done is hear it, and it's never really taken root in your life. And if that's the case, then prayer is how you get through the barrier of Satan, whether it's prayer for your own salvation, that is, that you place your faith in Christ, or if you know somebody that's stuck and for years they've never placed their faith in Christ, then prayer is how you help them, how you ask God to help them, to take away the blinders that Satan has caused, and that that word would not be stolen away from their heart. I would think, for the most part, most of us in this room are somewhere in the next few soils. And it may be the rocky places that the Word of God has been sown in your life, but you have so many struggles, you have so many afflictions, that honestly you're just not bearing fruit for God. If someone were to ask you, you know, why aren't you really involved? Why aren't you using your gifts for the body of Christ? You'd, you would say, well, you know, I've got this, this, he's, these are all my problems, these are all the reasons that I can't uh, serve God. Affliction. And the solution is to realize that these afflictions are tests. That's how Christ refers to them here in this parable. You need to see these afflictions as tests. And then finally, the thorns. If you're in a situation where the reason that you're not 
serving the Lord is not because you're afflicted, but because you've got the opposite problem, you're blessed. You are blessed beyond words, and your blessings are distracting. The riches and the focus on things actually cause worry in your life rather than mere mere blessings. The solution is to see those things as temporary. You don't live for riches and things, and you don't live to alleviate your worries. You see all those things as temporary, and you want to live for what lasts. You want to live for what is eternal. So based on this passage, I want to ask you a couple of questions, a couple of key questions just between you and and Christ. And here's the first one. If your afflictions are but tests of your faith, how will you respond? How will you respond? You see, we think that the devil is done with us if we're not the, the first soil on the road. If somehow through prayer we've broken through that, the barrier of Satan and the word actually has gotten implanted in our lives, we think, oh, Satan's done with us. But the reality is that no, Satan can also tempt us to doubt God's love based on affliction. Years ago at a national prayer breakfast, Condoleezza Rice said these words. She said, we're living through a time of testing and consequence and praying that our wisdom and will are equal to the work before us. And it's at times like these that we're reminded of a paradox that it is a privilege to struggle, a privilege to struggle for what is right and true, a privilege even to struggle with the most difficult and profound moral choices. American slaves used to sing, nobody knows the trouble I've seen, glory hallelujah. Growing up, I would often wonder at the contradiction of the, uh, contained in this line, but as I grew older, I came to learn that there's no contradiction at all. I believe the same message is found in the Bible in Romans 5, where we are told to rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that the suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not disappoint us because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, which has been given to us. Wouldn't it be great if our National Prayer Breakfast still had people that said words like that? Well, let me ask you, though, do you have rocky soil? you have affliction? The perspective that you need to change is that the affliction is not a test of God's love for us. God, if you love me, I wouldn't have affliction. That's looking at it backwards. The test is a test of your love for God. Again and again, I remember Dr. Toussaint's words as he taught us through Malachi, where he said that your present condition is not to be... um, not to be basically proof or lack of proof of God's love for you. Never look at your present circumstances to determine if God loves you. You know, you never know who you are until you have affliction. Affliction really shows who you really are. The rocky soil bore no fruit because it had no depth. The proper response to affliction deepens you and gives you the depth in which the Word of God can take root and you bear fruit. Here's the second question. Here's the second question I'll ask you. If your worries and riches and things are temporary, then what will you live for? Um, I remember hearing a story that Mark Twain was talking with a Mormon on one occasion and was debating the Mormon whether or not polygamy worked. And, And Mark Twain was saying, it doesn't work. And he said, in fact, I'll quote... From the mouth of Jesus, 
no man can serve two masters. <laughs> you said that, brother. I didn't say that. Well, forget context. I mean, he's right, but forget context. Jesus said, no, no one serves two masters. Christ wasn't talking about marriage. He was talking about money. You can't serve two masters, God or money. If your life is so preoccupied with the things of the world, then you simply may need to change your perspective. Just as afflictions are a test, so are blessings. Blessings can be a huge test in our life. I remember when Kathy and I were building our home about 13 years ago. Uh, if you've ever built a house, you, you, you dive face first into the, thorn, the thorny soil. It is a challenge uh, to do that and to not get caught up in the things of the world. But uh, Kathy gave a really helpful perspective as we were standing there looking at our house one day. She said, it's all going to burn. <laughs> well, that's true. And so because that's true, what are you going to live for? What is your devotion? Edward Kimball was a shoe shop assistant and a Sunday school teacher shared with a young man named Dwight who trusted Christ. And later, D.L. Moody won to the Lord a young man by the name of F.B. Meyer. Meyer won a young man to Christ by the name of J.W. Chapman. Chapman shared the message with a young baseball player named Billy Sunday. Sunday held a revival in Charlotte, North Carolina that was so successful that he had to have the help of another evangelist come in. Mordecai Ham, and when Mordecai Ham shared, a little farm boy sitting on the back row named Billy Graham heard and, and became converted. And it all started with a simple shoe shop salesman, a simple Sunday school teacher, who decided to share with a young boy named Dwight. You know, Ed Kimball, this shoe shop salesman, uh, probably had no idea that his 30-fold bearing fruit would eventually be used by God with some of these great evangelists that I just let, read who were hundredfold people. But God can produce a crop through your life if you'll simply decide, I'm going to push through these barriers, whatever it takes, and whatever is left of my life is going to count for Christ no matter what. And the best decision you can make every day to begin to be fruitful is to make this, not the book, and not just the truth of the book, but the, the God of the book. Let him teach you as you're in this word every day and you open your heart to its truth and allow the word of God to rake you over the coals each day and come clean with confession, with admission that you need him and you will begin to bear fruit. 30, 60, 100 fold. Let's pray. Father, I don't know how many times we've been in this room and, and given you thanks for the Word of God, but we can never thank you enough. If we were left to our own smarts or if we had to vote on what truth was, uh, there would be complete anarchy. We'd be, we'd be fighting. But we have a standard, an immovable clear-to-understand standard in your word. Thank you for giving it to us in, a, in our language that we can understand and 
And because you've given it to us now, we have the opportunity and the obligation to read it, to apply it, and to bear fruit for you. And so as we go forward today, as we leave, uh, may it not just be those who sat around the Sea of Galilee that day as Jesus gave this parable. Many came and heard nothing but a good story from a gifted teacher, and they walked away. We don't want that. We don't want our lives to just be to, to come to church or even to open this book on a daily basis and to feel some sort of emotion. We want your spirit to have his way with us, for your truth to penetrate to the deepest core of who we are and to change us, to make us more like Jesus. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.